welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life. It's a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Now, today, my guest is Jeff McMahon. Jeff is White's Professor of Moral Philosophy at the University of Oxford. His research focuses broadly on moral and political philosophy, and Jeff's perhaps best known for his work on the moral issues surrounding killing and letting die. These have taken him into discussions of war primarily, but also broader issues in bioethics. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, thanks for joining me on Why We Argue. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for giving me this opportunity. So, uh, great. Let's get to it. So, the freedom to propose and defend controversial and unpopular ideas, I think, is a staple of anybody's understanding of academic freedom. I suppose it's also a central commitment to any plausible free speech ideal. Now, you've recently written a piece for New Statesman about the practice or the norm, maybe, which is now becoming common within the academy, uh, perhaps especially, of no platforming. Uh, Can you tell us what no platforming is? Well, the first thing to say, I think, is that it's an absolutely terrible verb. I would never... (laughs) want to use it myself. In fact, I had hoped to keep it out of my article in the New Statesman, but um, New Statesman editors put it both in the title and once also in my text. I, I would, I'm, I'm averse to using it. But what it basically means is trying to prevent people from speaking when those people's views are regarded as offensive or immoral. I don't know whether people use this term no platforming to refer to deliberations about whom to invite, let's say, to give lectures at university campuses uh, so that it might or might not count as an instance of no platforming if a committee which has the responsibility for deciding whom to invite to give talks in a lecture series, for example, decides that some particular possible candidate's views are so badly misguided or offensive or whatever that it's best just not to invite that person. And maybe the reason for not inviting that person is just not to give that person an opportunity to present views that are so clearly repugnant. I don't know whether that counts as an instance of no platforming. If that's Uh, what happens, I think that's perfectly justifiable. That is, I think, uh, as I said in the New Statesman article, that no one has the right to be invited to speak somewhere, for example, at a university or in a departmental colloquium series or anything of the sort. And it's a perfectly reasonable um, criterion for exclusion that somebody's views are are, um, repellent. And I would think such a person has no complaint in that instance, nor do people who might want to hear that person speak have a have a complaint that the person was not invited in the first place, not offered 
an honorarium, transportation costs, whatever. But once a person has been invited and shows up to give a talk uh, and people then shout the speaker down and prevent the speaker from being able to speak, that's the paradigm case of no platforming. That is, I think, what people generally have in mind when they refer to this phenomenon. And uh, that's what I wrote against. I see. So in this case, then, no platforming really is a, a kind of um, a practice that involves, you know, actions to either prevent uh, a speaker from who has been invited to prevent that person from speaking or to disrupt the speaking once it's not been prevented. Is that right? That seems right to me. It, it, it seems to me that that practice, that is preventing a person who has come to speak and been invited to come to speak, preventing that person from being able to speak and give arguments for his or her views. That seems to me very controversial and problematic, and I actually think wrong, whereas simply not inviting a person doesn't seem to me to be particularly controversial or objectionable. Right. So good. So and that that seems right to me. And so the no platforming then is also, I suppose, I mean, this this odd term, I suppose, is also intended to invoke a moral claim about the justification of either the disruption of the speaking or the preventing of the speaking from beginning. It's the, the it's a kind of moral claim that says somebody with views of this kind who probably shouldn't have been invited to speak in this particular forum, whatever it may be, is in virtue of what he or she is about to say, not entitled to the platform that uh, the, you know the, the the podium, as it were, maybe the microphone, whatever it may be, not entitled to the platform, which would enable her or him to present the ideas. Is is that it's, so? It's got a moral. You can imagine some modes of disrupting public speaking that is intended to contribute to a debate or to you know sort of instigate a debate with the speaker. This has got some slightly different kind of claim. It's that the speaker is not even to be debated with, and that's the problem of giving him or her the platform. Right. The, I think the usual suggestion is that the views that this speaker typically uh, defends are indefensible, offensive, harmful, as people often say, to to certain sectors of the of the population or the community and for that reason this person must not be given the cachet that comes with uh, an opportunity to address an audience let's say at a university they should not be accorded the legitimacy that is somehow conferred through the opportunity to uh, address people on a formal occasion, again, let's say at a university. Uh, And so the idea is that if the person is allowed to speak, that person is being given what they call a platform. That is an opportunity that comes with legitimization of the, the, the person and the person's views. Right. 
Can you say uh, just a little bit more? It's, it's you know this is a much more complicated um, phenomenon than than I think it's often presented as because you know it, it does often at least in the in the cases that I'm familiar with where sort of the the, the denial of the platform has been sort of asserted as a as a, a moral stance and and a, the giving of a platform is seen as an as grounds for objecting to somebody speaking. It seems like it is bound up with uh, often at least maybe not certainly not. Not intrinsically, but often it's bound up with the claim that the speaking itself or the, the articulating, let alone the defending of the repugnant view is itself a kind of harm to some community that may or may not be addressed in what is said or may or may not be the subject of what is spoken about, but that the, the articulating of certain ideas is harmful to speak some members who may or may not even be likely to be in the audience. Is that uh, also part of, of, of uh, the standard profile of the move to deny a platform? Well, something like that is frequently said. That is, right. it's frequently claimed that if someone is allowed to say the things that they might say in the course of giving a, a lecture that they were invited to give, this will cause what people say is tangible harm to usually uh, people who are described as among the, the the most vulnerable people in the in the community or in the society and i'm just not quite sure exactly what that means it doesn't seem to me that having things said about oneself constitutes a tangible harm it it may well be that nobody gives any credence to what the person has said, in which case it's not clear what the harm is. I have tended to think that it's that the protesters at these events think that it's more the consequences of the person's ideas, the speaker's ideas getting more into circulation and being validated in some way by having been presented at the university that will constitute the harm. That isn't that it will exacerbate uh, discrimination against the people who are spoken about in uh, uh, unfavorable ways in, in the talk. But maybe you're right that, that one of the assumptions is that simply articulating certain claims about people or groups of people uh, is itself harmful to those people. Right. Um, I, I don't quite know how to assess that at that, in general, that seems to me not terribly plausible, but there may be some instances in which um, it, it, it is true. Right. So one further sort of, I mean, who knew that <laughs> Who knew that no platforming had so many different sort of dimensions to it as just a concept? But, um, you know, back, I think it was in the, the mid-90s, Richard Dawkins had published a piece in Skeptical Inquirer or Free Inquiry, one of those um, uh, magazines about why he was moving forward, refusing to debate creationists. And the argument there was not a no-platforming argument, but it, it's in the family. It did have the, look, what uh, Dawkins says, something, I'm you know, just sort of uh, running this argument through, from memory, so I might not be you know, exactly accurate, but it's, I think mm -hmm. I'll be close enough. Dawkins says something like, look, you know, I've appeared on these stages and you know, done these debates long enough to know that 
no matter what I say, the creationist just keeps saying whatever he's inclined or she's inclined to say. So it's not actually a debate in that in, in any philosophically respectable sense. Nobody, you know, I whatever I say, you say the same thing back. And they said, and I've come to realize that the the entire you know sort of endeavor, the the the, the entire project of debating me uh, among creationists is simply to appear on the stage with a distinguished biologist, and. That in itself, no matter what gets said or, you know, how thoroughly I, you know, defeat the creationist arguments, the fact that I've appeared on stage with a creationist gives a kind of legitimacy in that it communicates to a broader audience the thought that there is a debate to be had, that Richard Dawkins needs to debate this issue because there's something worth responding to, even if it's to just refute it on the other side. And Dawkins argues, and that's the mistake. There's nothing here to debate because there is no position, you know, driven by reasons and evidence and all the normal things that would, you know, be necessary to be in place in order for there to be a debate. There's no debate to be had. So why even, Mm -hmm. you know, appear? Now, that's not no platforming because he's just, again, you know, he doesn't want to be party to a particular kind of public spectacle that he thinks he had been opportunistically implicated in in the past. But it does have a kind of philosophical core. I think that the the giving the platform, uh, in this case, you know, that the platform debating a distinguished biologist does have the does have a kind of legitimating force to it. Do you think that's part of at least some of? I mean, do you think that the the analog to that is part of what's in the the minds of those who who uh, adopt this no platforming stance? I think it probably is. Yes, um, I do think that there's a difference between having a debate with someone and enabling that person simply to speak and then take questions from from an audience. And I, I would imagine that having the debate does have a greater effect in conferring a certain kind of legitimacy or credibility on the on the person who's in, engaged in the debate with the with the host. On the other hand, as in so many uh, instances, there's more to be said about this, and that is that the reason that Dawkins had to engage in debates with creationists is that there are a lot of people who accept creationism. And one thing that he could hope to achieve is to show some of the people who are inclined to embrace creationism that there are powerful arguments against their view. So, It's true that debating with creationists may give those creationists a certain kind of legitimacy that they might not otherwise have. On the other hand, there are going to be a lot of creationists either way, you know, whether Dawkins debates them or not, he's not going to, creationism is not going to go away if he refuses to debate it. So I think you have to weigh these considerations against one another. And I think that uh, Dawkins probably made a mistake. That is that it's, that it's better to continue to give the reasons and arguments against and the evidence against creationism than it is to ignore these people and uh, let them go on uh, promulgating their views without 
significant opposition. Right. Good. And I, I take it this is a, a kind of standard million point. Maybe the focus of you know that calculation you know can't simply be the other guy on the stage or the the people. Uh, already committed to what the other guy on the stage is going to say, surely there is also members of the audience or would-be members of the audience who might incline in one way but not be fully convinced to the creationist view simply because they haven't seen or heard a competent defender of the opposing side. And so there's a consideration, I guess, for the as-yet unconvinced or uncommitted but interested audience member that yes. is being denied you know, th that person is kind of being left to fend for him or herself in whatever intellectual environment she or he may be in that might be um you know just sort of overrun with creationist arguments right exactly uh that 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 seems to me exactly right that is you Dawkins is probably right in believing that Whoever it is who's the representative of creationism who's been selected to debate with him is not going to be persuadable by reasons and arguments coming from biological science. But what he may not be taking into consideration is that there may be lots of other people who are genuinely on the fence about, about the issue who could be swayed or persuaded by good reasons and, and good arguments. There may be lots of such people who haven't given much thought to this, particularly young people who are maybe have been raised in, in, in households in which creationism was, was accepted, but who are now um, moving away from the home and are inclined to be slightly skeptical skeptical, he could help them by showing them what the case against creationism is and what the case in favor of the opposing view is. So I think that's the kind of thing that he has to take into consideration. It seems to me that, that the possibility of outcomes of that sort make engaging in debate with these people well worth doing, even if the representatives who appear on stage are impervious to rational argument. Good, good, good. So maybe this is a nice uh, segue then, because the New Statesman piece that you published, ultimately the th your thesis is that no platforming is not only a mistake in all kinds of uh, you know, ways, maybe it's unfair, all the rest, but it's also counterproductive. And ha have we have we now sort of with the the example of Dawkins have we sort of hit upon some of the ways in which you think that the no platforming stance now the strategy of no platforming maybe we should call it uh, is counterproductive? Yeah, one thing that I didn't mention a moment ago in connection with the Dawkins example, which I uh, frankly don't don't remember, is that if Dawkins says in public, "I'm just not going to debate with creationists anymore." Uh, it doesn't do any good. They don't. They don't listen to reason, and so on. Then, what you can imagine is a lot of the creationists thinking, "Yeah, <laughs> well, um, Dawkins hasn't changed his mind. Uh, we've given him our reasons and arguments, and we, we, we never, we, we, you know, he's not. Uh, he hasn't come around to our point of view either. Why should? Why should?" He be entitled to to think that we should come around, but that he shouldn't. He's he's already assuming that there's there, there's an asymmetry between us and him and the people on his side, which is that he's right and we're wrong. And now it it seems to us as if he's he's sort of conceding. He's saying, "I'm not going to debate these people anymore." And what 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 they what 
uh, an impartial observer might think is, well, his saying that the creationists don't listen, that they're impervious to reason and argument is just a, is just a rationalization. Actually, what's happening is he's not able to refute them. And so he's, he's giving up there. They are, they're willing to go on talking, but he's not. And so doesn't that indicate that he doesn't really have the kind of confidence in his view that he, he, he claims he does. That's one possibility. Another is that, that uh, people who are sympathetic to creationism will, will have the thought that these people on the other side, they're not willing to talk to us. They're not willing to engage in reason and argument with us. Why is that? That too will reinforce their sense that, that they are in the right in this. It may be a time-consuming, tedious, and long-term project to reason and argue with people who uh, really are, are not picking up on the, the, the reasons and arguments and evidence and, and uh, appreciating it the way um, it, that's necessary. But that's still probably the better alternative, that right. is to, to go on reasoning and arguing with people rather than just giving up. They're not going to infer from that what Dawkins himself said, namely that there's yeah. no point in talking to them because they're just too stupid and too, you know, too whatever. Right. That's not what they're going to believe. And so I think the same thing is true with no platforming. The people who come to, to, to give talks whose views are to many people offensive or, 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 or mistaken or immoral or whatever – they don't believe that about themselves, nor do people who are sympathetic to them believe that. They do, in almost all cases, have some kind of something that's moving them to embrace the view that the speaker wants to defend. And if, it's, if it genuinely is an immoral view, the best thing to do is to try to understand what it is that's motivating the person to defend this immoral view. What is the attraction of this view to others who support the view? And when one tries to to, to understand these things, then one can argue with these people in ways that get to their motivations. And one may very well be able to uh, change minds and convince people that they're wrong. Um, you you have to hold out that hope if you th- if you think that people are just at all rational, right? So I wonder if then we haven't sort of hit upon at least what what may be operative in at least some of the no platforming uh, strategies, uh, which I, I I take it in certain cases maybe. You know, we don't go into we won't go into cases, but it, you know there are some instances where I think this is actually part of the the overtly part of the the moral claim on behalf of the no platformers. What you just said, Jeff, so you know part of what's important about you know hearing the 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 uncontro- hearing the controversial or the unpopular view is you know you're better able to think your way into this perspective that you you may judge to be. Uh, and may judge correctly to be, you know, morally repugnant and mistaken in all kinds of ways. But still, there's something that draws a, a particular population of of individuals to adopt that kind of view. And isn't it better, you were saying, uh, to understand what the attraction is so that you might be better able to combat the view and maybe address, you know, the source of its attraction. I take it that some of the no, no platformers object to that very endeavor that there are some sort of cognitive or epistemic positions that no one is under 
especially the most vulnerable, right? Uh, the people being attacked by the unpopular view. Uh, nobody's required morally to place themselves in the cognitive space of those who hold repugnant views, that that itself is a kind of inappropriate demand to place on people, especially when the unpopular view is a view that denies the full moral standing of, the equality of, and the humanity of the person to whom this obligation, put yourself in the shoes of the proponent of this ugly view, it puts the obligation on the people who are actually defamed by the view. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. But again, I just think that that's, uh, generally speaking, uh, a mistake. Good. That is, what I think is that, well, Let's let's just let's take an example. Good. Take an example of someone who is affiliated with a right-wing populist political party that has a very harsh view about immigration. Wants to enforce extremely stringent anti-immigration policies for a country. Now, what people who go to protest against such a person's speaking will claim about that person is that that person is a racist. That may or may not be true, probably is true, but the point is that the, 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 the people to whom that speaker's views appeal are not necessarily all racist. It's not that they hate people of, of other races. There are genuine concerns that people have about immigration that get mixed up in, in, in people's minds and come out in in support of maybe let's say effectively racist policies and so on but the the way to try to combat these views is not to 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 shout the people down and say you're not worth talking to you're you're so repugnant that um we, we don't want to get inside your mind many of these people who who to whom the speaker's views appeal are the victims of empirical mistakes. They simply don't understand the issues. They, they are afraid of immigration. They're afraid of what it's going to do to them. They're afraid of people they don't understand or don't know anything about. And if one were to present them with the facts, with the information, treat them as, as human beings who are capable of engaging in a reasonable discussion about these issues, again, I think it's possible to bring people around. But you're not going to do that by uh, simply saying to the, 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 the people who present the views that are attractive to these people in public, that is politicians and others, by, by, by saying to them, your representatives, the speakers who, are, who come to present the views that you favor are so evil that we're not even going to listen to them. That is not the way to break through the misconceptions, the mistakes, the errors that underlie the views of many of these people who are not themselves deeply racist, but have concerns about immigration that motivate them to support the right-wing populist party. Right. And I guess that that's the key to the the counter productiveness, uh, counterproductivity. Anyway, the, the, the way in which... Let me say one thing about the counter counterproductiveness. I mean, another the, the, I, I wasn't entirely clear about that, though I did say a little bit about it. That is that when, when a, a speaker is silenced th- 
through force and intimidation and prevented from being able to speak at some event uh, at which that person has been invited to speak, that person's partisans, that person's supporters, the people who are inclined to be sympathetic to that person's views, then will regard that person as a martyr for their cause. It gives that person a lot of publicity that the person would not otherwise have got. It elicits sympathy for that person from people who are either initially sympathetic or perhaps even neutral in the issues, people who are suspended between the two camps. If they see the one camp preventing the other from being able even to to speak and through force and intimidation, it's not at all surprising if their sympathies go to the person who's been shouted down or forcibly prevented from being able to speak. Right. Jeff, thank you for your time today. We were into the the last couple of minutes. Uh, I wanted to make sure, though, I wanted to ask you about um, this journal that you've co-founded. You are the co-founder of a new academic journal, which is titled The Journal of Controversial Ideas. One feature of this new venue, apart from the the feature that's made obvious by the title, is that it will allow authors to publish uh, their work anonymously. Uh, can you tell us in, in, in the remaining few minutes, can you tell us a little bit about this uh, venture? Well, yeah, the the aim of the journal, which actually doesn't yet exist, we're still negotiating with potential publishers and are very eager to be able to issue a, a, a call for submissions, but we haven't been able to do that yet. Mm-hmm. We hope to soon, but that doesn't yet exist, but will exist. And The aim of the journal is to uh, provide the opportunity for people to publish under a pseudonym if they feel that the consequences for them or those they care about of publishing under their own name would be excessively dangerous for them. It would deter them from from presenting their reasons and arguments and evidence for their view in a public format. So that's that's the uh, point of the journal. I should say that to avoid uh, misunderstanding that it's certainly not the case that authors are required to publish under pseudonyms. We'd be very happy if people publish under their own names, but we want to offer the possibility of pseudonymous publication for people who have reason to believe that uh, it would be uh, very risky to them to publish some view under their own name. Were you surprised? So the, the this venture, uh, which is your right to point out, the journal does not yet exist. But I take it that you've gotten some significant kinds of criticism from the philosophy profession and maybe beyond. Um, was that surprising to you that people would find this objectionable? No, nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Got it. Um, well, Jeff, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for uh, for talking to me today on why you why we argue. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Why We Argue podcast, which I'll remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. If you're so inclined, you can follow the project on both Twitter and on Facebook at Public Humility. That's one word, at Public Humility. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.